Warning! This episode contains mentions of child abuse. Listen with care. Welcome to Morning Seminary. I'm your host, Simeon Sideways, and in this podcast we'll explore some of the teachings of the Book of Mormon, a strange book published in 1830 that Mormons claim is a historical account written by people from an ancient world. For now, let's ignore the Book of Mormon's mentions of horses, elephants, chariots, silk, steel, wheat, and all the other stuff that didn't exist in pre-Columbus America, or even how author Joseph Smith tried to sell the copyright to a fiction publisher. We are here to read some stories together. Can people really change? I don't mean liking new things or growing wiser with age, but like, change right there on the spot. Is it possible? According to the Mormon Church, the answer is yes. Christians call it being born again, which essentially means forging or renewing a commitment to Jesus Christ. You confess your sins and promise to do better, leading to forgiveness that turns you into a new person and sets you on a path of self-improvement you never saw before. Yes, life will still be there to tempt you, but with Jesus on your side, there's something to live for. You've changed. It's tough, though. Many sinners don't admit to being wrong. Of those who do, it's hard to know who's being sincere and who's just saying what they think people want to hear. I came out of there believing with all my heart that the Bible was God's word and that Jesus was my risen savior. Well, I'm willing to die too, but for God's gain. I've since come to believe that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God. Sometimes it gets really bad where a person strays so far from the straight and narrow that they're no longer capable of finding a way back. Their anger and confusion lead to hateful, regrettable actions, like shaving a mullet or joining a pyramid scheme. Only God can change these wayward hearts. In this episode, we're talking about Alma the Younger, Mormonism's favorite bad boy. He spent his adolescent years trashing the church and making fun of the prophet, But eventually, God said, enough is enough, and knocked some sense into him. The story of Alma the Younger takes place in Zarahemla, a place you may be familiar with since basically everything in the Book of Mormon happens there. The ruler, King Mosiah, just released a citywide proclamation telling everyone not to harass the believers. There should not any unbeliever persecute those who belong to the Church of God. The proclamation works. Everyone becomes super righteous, I guess. We're told that because of their righteousness, they multiply in the land. From this fertile pool are born five absolutely bad boys, King Mosiah's four sons and Alma, son of the prophet. Corn Pop was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. Alma became a very wicked and idolatrous man, and he was a man of many words, and did speak much flattery to the people. This is Alma the Younger, a total hellion who thinks it's boring to believe. So he tells everybody that they don't need religion to be good. Actually, we don't know what he says. The Book of Mormon never quotes him or anything. So I went ahead and made up a few possible flattering phrases he might have used. You're too cool for religion. I think you are a good person with or without a church. Does your morality hinge on whether or not there is a God? 
goodness. You're so smart. Why would you believe something so f***ing ridiculous? Seriously, I don't know what Elmo's flattery looked like in this context, but he's swaying lifelong believers to the point of leaving. And apparently there are lots of them. On top of that, it's illegal to persecute believers. He did go about secretly with the sons of Mosiah, seeking to destroy the church. So not only is Alma trying to deconvert people, but he's so good at it that his converts are keeping their mouths shut so he won't get arrested. You do not talk about Fight Club. Meanwhile, his dad, the prophet, also named Alma, is praying as hard as he can for his son to quit this path of destruction and get back to church. I mean, come on, man. It looks bad for the prophet's kid to be trash-talking his dad's bread and butter. One day, while Alma and his band of droogs are flaunting about town in a secretive manner, the ground starts to rumble beneath their feet. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto them, descending as it were in a cloud, and he spake as it were with a voice of thunder that shook the earth. Alma is knocked to the ground. The angel stares right at him and cries out, Alma, why persecutest thou the church of God? For the Lord hath said, This is my church, and I will establish it, and nothing shall overthrow it save it is the transgression of my people. Isn't every church's problem the transgression of its people? Also, has a church ever been overthrown? Behold, the Lord hath heard the prayers of his people, and also the prayers of his servant, Alma, who is thy father. The angel lets Alma know that he's only here because of the prayers of the faithful. God accepts requests, but he gives preference to people with more faith. Behold, can ye dispute the power of God? Doth not my voice shake the earth? And can ye not also behold me before you? I am sent from God. The angel makes sure Alma knows this isn't a hallucination, just in case. Then he sends him off with a commandment to stop being a jerk. Alma, go thy way and seek to destroy the church no more. The bad boys are astonished at having just seen an angel with their own eyes. Alma is so stunned that he can't move or talk and has to be carried back to his dad's house where he lays for two days and two nights, during which time his dad and the other priests pray intensely. <laughs> The prayers of the faithful work, again. Alma the Younger arises from his mini-coma full of hope and conversion, and he's got some important stuff to say upon waking. I have repented of my sins and been redeemed to the Lord. I was a piece of shit though. Used to be. I said was! He goes on. All mankind must be born again, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness and thus they become new creatures. It's fair to assume Alma was born again, right? Mormons believe being born again requires baptism by immersion, but Alma wasn't baptized during his little coma. At least not consciously or with his consent. He basically just wakes up and says he's not the same person anymore. This I know because I was like to be cast off. I used to be like everybody else, but now I know better, and you can too. Here's the thing, okay? It takes two things to be a real, exemplary Mormon. First, you have to be obedient. You have to know the rules and follow them exactly, which might make you look like a prude, 
but it's a small price to pay for eternal life with God. Second, and equally important, you have to be an example to the unbelievers. Jesus was friends with everybody, especially those who were lost or who needed a friend. It was through his friendship people realized they didn't have to live a life of sin, even if they didn't realize it till decades later, even if they never attributed it to his influence. Wild man never dives in less than 12 feet of water! You have to be so f***ing good that people want to be you. So not only is partying with the cool kids allowed, it's advisable as a way to show others how great their lives could be if they got their sh** together. Just be careful not to sin in the process. Unfortunately, Jesus was the only perfect person to ever live. So despite your best efforts to follow his example, you'll always fall short. Way short. Like, so short you'll feel the way Alma did during his dream slash nightmare. What do you really want? I want you to hate me. Why? Because I hate myself! But this is what makes Alma the perfect church member. He has a wild side. He experienced everything the world had to offer and then chose to be here in the light of God, proving that everyone would choose happiness over wickedness given an informed choice. After wading through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord has seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burden. At this point, though, he just kind of sells it. I rejected my Redeemer and denied that which had been spoken of by our fathers. That every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess before him at the last day, when all men shall stand to be judged of him. Then shall they confess that he is God, and they shall quake and tremble and shrink beneath the glance of his all-searching eye. The fear of God puts Alma back on the path of righteousness. In just 48 hours, he has completely changed and is now committed to undoing the damage he had done. And they traveled throughout Zarahemla, zealously striving to repair all the injuries they had done to the church, and explaining the prophecies and scriptures to all who desired to hear them. Not a lot of people know this, but L. Ron Hubbard was a black man! This first account is written in third person. Later, Alma the Younger has kids of his own and retells the experience. Yea, I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. Uh, murdered? I guess we'll chalk it up to a translation error. They said that you killed younglings. Again, I killed at younglings. Younglings Asian Comedy Club? It's the most kick-ass Asian comedy club in the galaxy. So great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my god did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. This is an important point, one Mormons base their idea of heaven on. For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. That scripture comes from the Doctrine and Covenants, a book comprising Joseph Smith's revelations after the founding of the church. What does abide mean in this context? The dictionary defines it as to tolerate or endure, which is consistent with what about half my followers believe about Mormon heaven, that we are our own judges. To abide a celestial glory means to be able to stand in the presence of God. As a missionary, I taught investigators that come judgment day, your life story will be played on a giant movie screen where you can judge for yourself which heavenly kingdom you will abide. Mormons have three levels of heaven. Again, some Mormons will say otherwise, but many believe you are the arbiter of your own salvation. 
God is there to oversee judgment, sure. But for someone to enter heaven unworthily would be like showing up to a black tie dinner in a bathing suit. You just wouldn't want to be there. This seems complicated, though. Horrible people destroy countless lives every day, yet feel little or no remorse for their actions. Henry Kissinger is still alive as of this writing. Henry Kissinger died the day I recorded this. Hallelujah. Brigham Young, genocider and husband to child brides, will go to top-tier heaven. Meanwhile, Alma's big sin was leading people away from the church, for which she feels terrible and yeah, maybe God needed to stop him. But like, where was God during the Trail of Tears? The Holocaust. Surely those victims prayed for deliverance too, right? Why hasn't every serial killer in history been turned from their evil ways like Alma was? Why did God pick now to intervene? Why does Alma get a second chance when other Book of Mormon villains were disabled or killed outright? It's easy to see why Alma the Younger is a favorite story in the Book of Mormon. A young apostate renounces sin and becomes one of God's foremost advocates, proving that no matter how far you stray from the straight and narrow, there is always a way back. It's a redemption story. Deep down, we're all good people. Turning your life around is as easy as committing to follow Jesus Christ. All it takes is dedication. Indeed, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ entails a fundamental and permanent change in our very nature. There is no character in the Book of Mormon who sins, repents, and sins again. It would undermine the permanence of the change affected by Jesus' atonement. Were the euphoria of total forgiveness and redemption actually permanent, recidivism wouldn't happen. Human nature can be changed here and now. The U.S. Justice Department conducted a 10-year study of state prison inmates and found that over 80% were arrested again, with each being arrested seven times on average. When you administer the gospel, the cure can be permanent. So our prisons are not rehabilitative, and I don't trust statistics from the Justice Department, but if the numbers are even half true, it paints a much different picture than the Alma the Younger story. People who make mistakes and repent don't become new people overnight, and not because they aren't finding Jesus. In fact, Pew Research found that nearly three-fourths of prison chaplains focus on proselytizing, and about half of all inmates join or switch religions during incarceration. So no, it's not a lack of religion that causes recidivism, it's just human nature. But the concept of the mighty change of heart is central to the Mormon repentance process. While confessing sins may result in restrictions to church sacrament services, or in serious cases, even disfellowship or excommunication, it's the start of a new chapter, one guided by the spiritual direction of their local bishop. Presiding priesthood leaders are given the gift of discernment. While repentance is a personal matter between the penitent and God, bishops represent God and facilitate the repentance process. Their powers of discernment confirm whether or not someone is truly penitent. A confidential confession to a clergy person often breaks the cycle of abuse, says one 2015 press release. The statement was a response to concerns that the Mormon church knowingly covered up child abuse, an accusation that has only grown in the years since. Here's the thing. For a while now, churches have benefited from what's called clergy penitent privilege, where church members can confess their sins without any threat of law enforcement getting involved. 
where therapists and doctors must alert authorities about clients who pose a threat to themselves or others. Clergy have unconditional hush privileges to avoid deterring people from confessing their sins. I think it makes sense in many cases. Like, imagine you confess to cheating on an abusive spouse. You may not want anyone else to know about it. And if your ecclesiastical leader had to alert authorities about domestic assault, it would become a much bigger issue. Mormon bishops can provide a path to forgiveness without making waves in the local congregation. Confessing parties get to relieve guilt quietly and move on with their lives. By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Like Alma, the penitent need only confess and forsake their sins to be forgiven. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. So as long as you keep your act together and forsake whatever you repented of, God himself won't even remember your mistakes. They will be edited out from the big screen movie of your life so you can stand proudly in God's presence. In the example of spousal abuse, it's understandable why some may want confidentiality. However, the same cannot be said of child abuse, something the Mormon Church has trouble reporting to law enforcement. An investigation by the Associated Press claims an abuse helpline used by lay leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was used to cover up a case of sexual abuse. The church was recently pleased with an Arizona court ruling that absolved them of wrongdoing for failing to report child abuser Paul Adams to authorities. Despite Adams filming the abuse of his children and posting the videos online, the church's abuse helpline advised his bishop that he could, quote, absolutely do nothing. Despite meeting with Adams multiple times to help him repent, and even asking Adams' wife to intervene and protect the children, no one alerted law enforcement. Adams was allowed to continue abusing for seven more years until U.S. Homeland Security stumbled across one of his videos during the arrest of a different pedophile. Church defense attorney William Maladin sees nothing wrong with how the church handled the matter. Bishop Herod made it clear that Paul Adams should turn himself in or give him authority to report it to authorities, he wouldn't do that. To lay the blame at the feet of the bishops for it is just absurd. It's just absurd. One might assume the church erred on the side of Adams finding forgiveness, but actually they excommunicated him. So not only did they fight his arrest, they also cut him off from the blessings of membership. The church defends itself saying they only knew of one incident which contradicts what Adam's bishop said about Adam's abusing both his daughters. They say the bishop tried to help the victims by getting Adam's to repent, to which I say, great job. While the press release quoted earlier says confession often breaks the cycle of abuse, the church's helpline video says the opposite. Many perpetrators express remorse but few actually change until they experience the full consequences of their immoral and illegal actions. You'd think this would make the church more eager to kickstart the process of legal consequences, but alas. We have an obligation to help redeem the perpetrator too. Adam's two daughters sued the church on grounds that its legal department protected their father while leaving them exposed to further abuse. William Maladon writes it off as nothing more than a money grab. 
could Paul Adams have been an Alma the Younger with enough confessing and forsaking? When should church leaders put barriers between people like him and their victims? Why are they deciding whether or not abusers get to keep abusing in the first place? It's bizarre how churches aren't indicted so much by their members' sins as by their own attempts to cover them up. Protecting the good name of the church ends up tarnishing it. Thanks to the work of organizations like Floodlit and Mormon Leaks, we know of at least 50 instances where the church's law firm Curtin McConkie advised bishops not to alert law enforcement about child abuse. Links are included in the show notes. And now it's time for... The Fair Mormon Response! The church has been linked to quite a lot of child abuse lately. One of the biggest scandals being detailed in the Netflix show Scout's Honor. Remember, the Boy Scouts of America did not abuse these kids. We had some bad people that cut in. If you haven't seen it yet, you should. But basically it talks about how the Mormon Church and others championed Boy Scouts of America as a world-class boys organization until abuse allegations started coming out, at which point they cut ties and buried everything they knew in hopes of avoiding lawsuits. In my opinion. Fair put out a nice, tidy response titled Abuse in the Church, where they accuse critics of promoting sensationalism and then equivocate about why the church might protect the identity of child predators, including this bit about background checks. When a, quote, clear background check is taken to mean we checked everything possible and there's nothing there at all, then parents relax their vigilance. Not only can children end up exposed to a predator, but now their parents believe this volunteer is safe because they, quote, passed a background check. This same article includes a list of best practices for preventing abuse. And right at the top of that list is a screening process. So background checks that verify actual criminal history might create false positives and put kids in harm's way, but a gut check performed by unpaid, untrained clergy won't. Anyway, article author Jennifer Roach later appeared on the Mormon podcast Saints Unscripted to discuss how Mormons can reconcile their faith following the Paul Adams atrocity. Don't let the evil actions of a deranged man steal your faith from you. She blames the actions of Paul Adams for people's faith crisis, as if the church's response to those actions isn't the real issue here. Though Jennifer Faith shames that, too. Like, you gotta roll that way, way, way back. Your faith is not in, did the helpline make the correct call every single time? If that's what your testimony is, is based on, like, it ain't gonna go well for you because humans are gonna make mistakes, right? Our faith is not in that. Our faith is in a Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Does the helpline ever make the right call? I'm curious to know when Jennifer thinks the right call is to cover up child abuse. It's really hard to imagine that these bishops are just sitting on their hands in their nice, comfy home. Oh, that girl's getting getting assaulted tonight, and I just yeah, can't no. be bothered. That's not what happened. That's ridiculous. Yeah, no. Sure, Jan. Jennifer goes on to suggest that one reason people are so pissed is because of the fervor that followed the Me Too movement. Five years ago, which is roughly when it was going on, we see it differently today. So the average adult reading this story is looking back on this case saying, I would have done this or I would have done that. Well, I don't actually believe that because I lived in pre-Me Too America and people didn't do that. 
I think this quote does more than any other to establish Jennifer's position as an apologist. She argues that the church failed to report abuse year after year, not because it was the right call, but because nobody else was doing it back then, at least not to the extent they do now. Right now, when you hear of abuse, when you hear of a case of abuse, when you hear of they're talking about things that happened decades ago for the most part. I don't think this is some massive, massive crisis. That was Cardinal Donald Worrell of the Catholic Church, an organization that begs to differ from Jennifer's conclusion. Their child abuse scandal made international headlines over 20 years ago when it was revealed that they protected child predators throughout thousands of cases of abuse. They too opted not to alert law enforcement. They too thought the sensationalism was to blame for people's anger, rather than the lifelong trauma enabled by the church's secrecy. I won't go so far as to say the two are on equal grounds, the Mormon church is a lot smaller, but their deflection tactics certainly overlap. Unfortunately, there can be no forgiveness without accountability, and since the Mormon church acknowledges no wrongdoing about their handling of child abuse, there are no old ways to forsake. Meanwhile, activist Mormons like Sam Young get excommunicated for suggesting that bishops shouldn't be asking 12-year-old girls about their sexuality. That's a whole other story, but basically this guy felt rightly weirded out that adult men were asking preteen girls about masturbation. The church fired off a statement saying it doesn't take orders from members, and then kicked him out. Will God ever intervene? Don't these situations call for a mighty change of heart too? Or is God too busy with celebrity-led nonprofits and megachurch gimmicks? Throughout the Bible, God used water as a point of contact. Today, God is using the miracle spring water the same way. And I called you, and I took the miracle spring water, and I've been delivered from drugs, from alcohol. Call the number on the screen to receive your free packet of miracle spring water. Well, that's it for this episode of Morning Seminary. If you enjoyed it, consider supporting me by subscribing to my Patreon. You'll get access to extra material while enjoying the peace of mind that comes from supporting an unemployed 30-something. Alma the Younger, a tale of forgiveness on demand. This is the guy who went on to help God kill Korihor by making him mute. Seems Alma didn't want to pay his second chance forward. Some people never change, you know?